All right, well, good morning, y'all. Um, guess what? You guys have already seen the sermon. <laughs> so if you weren't paying attention, that's all on you. In case you missed it, I'm going to go through it anyway. So um, I can't promise you that it'll be as quick as the last time that you saw it. We're in Mark chapter 10 this morning. We're continuing our way through. And at this stage of the gospel of Mark, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And he had spent some time up north, and he's beginning to travel back down south, and he's making incremental progress back to Jerusalem to ultimately go to the cross where he will suffer and die in the place of sinners. And along the way, he's confronted with a question, and it's answered for us in Mark's gospel through a couple of different episodes and encounters that Jesus has. But at the heart of this passage is the questions, who can be saved and how is a person saved? Now, I would like to think that there is universal understanding to the correct answer. And I submit to you there is a and only a single one correct answer to those questions. But... That doesn't always bear itself out in our world today. In August of 2020, it was reported, there was a survey that was taken. 63% of Americans believe having some type of faith is more important than which type of faith. So having any faith at all is more important than what is the object of your faith. And of that 63%, 68% of those individuals describe themselves as Christians. If you are a follower of Christ, that should smack you in the face. 52% of those who describe themselves as Christians believe they can gain eternal salvation by being or doing good. Let that sink in. More than half of those who would describe themselves as followers of Jesus believe they can gain salvation based off of their works. Jesus is going to answer this question for us much, much differently. And he's going to be very clear in how he answers that question. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. We had seen in a previous interaction between Jesus and his disciples that 
there was an effort to keep children away from Jesus. And what we shared a couple of weeks ago is that there was a prevailing thought in ancient culture that until a child reached the age of five, because of the high incidence of mortality among younger children, that until they got to about the age of five, they really, really weren't perceived as being all that valuable. And so again, here's the disciples doing, well, very disciply things and keeping kids away from Jesus. And Jesus spoke into it and he instantly assigned value to those kids and then used them as an illustration that this is what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God, to be like one of these children. So who can be saved? Those who come to Christ as a child. Not merely in childhood age. That's not what Jesus is doing here. But with the attitude and the faith of a child. If you think about it, children have a remarkable and unusually misplaced sense of trust in their parents' abilities. Each one of my children in various stages of their development when it came to the swimming pool, showed an unreasonable amount of trust in their father. There's zero evidence for them that really I could catch them. I had to actually practice with them. They stood on the side of the pool and they jumped. Now there's a couple I had to coax. Like, well, you just jump in the water, come on! But others far more reckless. Sometimes not even waiting for dad to even really pay attention. Just convinced, once I get airborne, daddy will catch me. I would like for you to know that all of my children have been caught. They're all doing well. They're fine. Everybody's fine. Jesus obviously is not describing a dad in a swimming pool, but it's that attitude that we're willing to trust Jesus like a child would trust his father. How many questions do the children have to ask and get clarity on before deciding to go to Jesus? Very few. They just knew, I can trust him. Some of us make our Christianity far, far, far more difficult than it was ever really designed to be. Jesus designed it to be that even a small child can hear and understand and respond to the invitation. It's been our joy here to baptize children. And I love getting to do that. I particularly love it when I don't do it, but instead the parents are the ones that baptize their kids. I, I love that part of it. But to see these young five, six, seven-year-old minds who have grasped the truth that Jesus loves them, that Jesus died on the cross for them, and that Jesus is their only hope of salvation, what else do they need to know? The disciples, of course, are making it far more difficult than it really needs to be. And Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God 
like a child shall not enter it. So who can be saved? Those who come to faith in Christ as a child. With that childlike sense of trust and wonder and ready to embrace all that Jesus has to offer. We can overthink things. Not that I struggle with that at all. Not at all. And make it vastly more complex than Jesus ever intended. There, yes, there is a sense in which our faith needs to grow and mature. And eventually we'll get to a place where we have decided theological convictions. But if you strip all those things away, what is the essential truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That he died on the cross for our sins and he's our only hope for salvation. If you can get that right, and guess what? A five-year-old child can get that right. Which also means a 95-year-old individual can get that right and everybody in between. If you can get that right, that is entering into the kingdom with faith like a child. Did Jesus say anything about that child's performance? Did Jesus say anything about that child's behavior? Do we see anywhere in this gospel or in the other gospels of Jesus laying down the rules for children? All right, kids. Now, before you come to me, I need you to do X, Y, and Z and do one, two, and three. There is nothing like that. Here's the really good news for you mom and dad. I just made your life a whole lot easier when it comes to you discipling your children. I want to encourage you mom and dad who are freaked out by the possibility of training your own children in uh, what the scriptures say. Can I make it even easier for you? You only have to be one day ahead of them. This does not require a master's degree. You can go get one, though. I'm all for a theological education. But you just stay one step ahead, and you keep coming back to the essential truth of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is promising. You do that. You repeat that message over and over and over in your child's life, and watch what God does with it. Now, as a contrast, Mark sets up his gospel to introduce us to somebody else. It's a unique encounter, and it doesn't go the way that I would have expected it to have gone. But it teaches us all the same. Starting verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, remember, he's still aiming towards Jerusalem. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack 
one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now to clarify, Jesus is addressing one specific individual and addressing one specific aspect of his character. Please do not read this verse and then assume, okay, the only way that I can follow Jesus is if I sell everything that I have and get rid of all my possessions. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is specifically addressing one individual about the condition of his heart. The word that's translated there, disheartened, isn't quite strong enough in English. It's more of a sense of disgust and of abiding sorrow because he valued his stuff so much. And Jesus does something really interesting in answering this guy's question. Jesus ends up making a distinction between law and gospel. When the young man asks him, what must I do to be saved? Jesus goes to like the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother. Okay, the first four, which is, you know, have no other gods before me, don't worship idols, you know, all that. He's kind of left that alone for now. He goes straight to the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. And he ends up making a distinction between law and gospel. Law does this. Law is our hands and our feet, what we do. And Jesus is appealing to what this young man think, thinks that he has done with his hands and with his feet. But the gospel has a different focus. And the gospel appeals to our heads and to our hearts. And our heads and our hearts then end up impacting our hands and our feet. It never works in reverse. And as he's having this conversation, he's making it abundantly clear to this young man, you are doing well, but there's something that you lack. And so he's affirming the fact for this guy, okay, yes, maybe you have done that, but probably not as well as you think you have, but here's what's missing. And he exposes his heart. It's interesting what Jesus does next. And we're going to see it in the text here shortly. But I want you to pick up on this. You would think, given the situation, given who Jesus is, what he knows, what he knows about himself, what he knows he's about to do, what he knows about the condition of this individual's heart, you would think that maybe there would be like a really super strong appeal from Jesus to like grab him by the cloak as he's walking away. Say, no, 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 I don't think you understand. Come back, come back. But he allows him to walk on. That could be a very challenging passage and thing to think through. What was motivating Jesus here? Why did Jesus not block his exit why did he not get into a longer conversation with him, to reason with him? Well, here's the advantage that Jesus has that we don't. Jesus could perceive this man's heart. 
he wasn't ready to give up his own lowercase g gods. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus is going to allow him to carry on down his path. Now, I'm hopeful. Now, there's nowhere in Scripture that tells us, okay? So this is all like hopeful speculation. But I'm hopeful at some point, maybe shortly after that terrible moment on the cross, that this rich young ruler realized, what have I done? And I'm praying that there's be, hopefully there's an opportunity that we'll get to meet him in heaven. He's like, okay, look, I got it right. Whew. But we don't know. Jesus lets us know that sometimes it's okay to not chase people. And that can be a really hard thing to hear. But we see Jesus doing it. Again, Jesus knows everything about himself. He knows everything about what he's going to do. He knows everything about this, about this rich young ruler. And he decides, you want to go your own way. I won't hinder you. The disciples are beside themselves flummoxed with what's gone on here. Starting in verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now let's pause there. Let's ask this question because this gets beat up quite a bit. What did Jesus mean? What is this eye of the needle that Jesus is talking about? There's an interpretation that's out there. It's been out there for a long time. That when Jesus is talking about the eye of the needle, he's talking about a gate around the city of Jerusalem. Now, around Jerusalem at that time, there was the east gate, there was the west gate, there's the water gate, there's the dung gate, and apparently there's this idea that there was this gate called the eye of the needle. And that the idea is that in order to get your camel through the eye of the needle, you would have to essentially get your camel to scrunch down onto his knees and then kind of push from behind and try to squeeze him through. Okay, that... That's not there in Greek. That's all English. Now, that's a fascinating story. But it is just that, a story. We didn't learn about that particular idea until like the ninth century, well after the events of this thing. So maybe we should question that a little bit. And maybe instead we should recognize that Jesus would do really well in our culture knowing how to speak in hyperbole in order to make a point. That he is saying, let me think of the largest thing possible, in the category, largest thing possible, and trying to imagine it going through an entrance that is of the smallest thing possible to these guys. He's trying to make a point that it is a challenge. He's not saying it's impossible. He's not saying it's never been done, but he's acknowledging the reality that it is more difficult for who? For a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And that's what we're seeing in this 
encounter with the rich young ruler who trusted so much both in his performance and his behavior, but also in his possessions, that the possibility of selling everything and following this itinerant preacher who was homeless for three years, that was going to be a challenge. That would seem unsafe and perhaps even in some perspective unwise. Why would I do that? Why would I give up everything that I have in order to go follow this guy? Again, Jesus is not condemning the rich. If you have wealth, you are not in sin. But recognize the temptation to use your wealth as an idol. That we would bow down to possessions and acquisitions and financial statements and make that vastly more important than the essential truth that Jesus loves sinners. In verse 24, we're told the disciples are amazed and then it gets worse. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? The disciples' perspective is that, hey, if you are materially wealthy, If you have great possessions, that's clearly an indication that God has blessed you. And so if God has blessed you, then certainly then you're in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is flipping that all upside down on them to say, well, that's not necessarily true. Perhaps you have friends who have been materially blessed. If we were to put it into good southern expression... They've got more money than Carter's got liver pills. Okay, that was both Southern and slightly anachronistic for those of you that are familiar with President Carter. Okay, that that illustration just really blew up in my face there, didn't it? (laughs) But you know people in your life who have been blessed, where finances just really aren't an issue for them. They don't think twice about it. But you also know that their hearts trust more in their possessions and more in their wealth than in the goodness and the promises of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The disciples are just like that. They're trying to figure out, how does this make any sense? Jesus responds in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Who can be saved? Now the disciples are asked that question at one level. Okay, look, if the rich people are struggling to be saved, then what, what hope do the rest of us have? But I like the inclusion of this question because I think it forces us to stop and pause and to consider our own salvation. And I can't say with certainty, but I have to think that there was some part of Mark as he's constructing this narrative of Jesus' life. Who has said, I'm going to put this in here and make people stop and think. 
about the impossible possibility that the great God of the universe would stoop down and rescue sinners. The disciples were stunned because, well, they thought for sure those who were financially blessed had like an easy end. I think we're meant to be stunned that we know ourselves. We know the condition of our hearts. We know what's been lurking deep inside of us. We know what we've done. We've all got some level of a past. We know how we don't match up to God's standard. We know how we fall short over and over and over again. I think we're meant to be left to be shocked that God would dare to save anyone. And this awesome statement from Jesus with man it is impossible but not with God for all things are possible with God I hope that you will take the time to memorize Mark 10:27 that one that one seems pretty easy to remember And I pray that as you remember it, that it causes you to just stop for a moment and worship that God has done the impossible. If we're really honest, none of us in this room, none of us on this planet deserve salvation at all. We deserve what we just read in the New City Catechism. We deserve that punishment and that eternal separation from the presence of God. But God's done the impossible. And that through Christ, broken, messed up, fallen, gnarly sinners like us get rescued and brought in. So who can be saved? Those who come to Jesus with a childlike faith that just rush to him and trust him knowing full well he is good. You know I've referenced the Chronicles of Narnia. I I want you to know I don't treat it as scripture. It's a few steps down. And there's an interaction between the Pevensey children as they learn about this character, Aslan. This lion that they've, they've only heard about. And they're having a conversation with beavers because that's what you do in fantasy books. Is you have conversations with beavers. And they're asking about Aslan and the beavers are mystified. You don't know who Aslan is? And they, they can't conceive how nobody knows. And they ask the question, well, is, is he safe? They said, No. He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. We need to recognize that when it comes to our Savior, there is a sense in which our safety is in peril. But it's the safety that we've constructed for ourselves. The safety of our comfortable lives. The safety of our own agendas. It's not safe in Jesus' hands. He will wreck all of that for us. But he's good. 
We need to be like the Pevensey children who trusted Aslan. We need to be like these small children who approached Jesus. And we need to get small in our minds and in our heads and approach Jesus that way, knowing that he's good. Those who trust Christ more than their own abilities or their possessions. Who can be saved? Those who do just that. Who can be saved? Those who see their need for a Savior. If you don't see a need for a Savior, Jesus is willing to let you walk on. We just saw that with this rich young ruler. But if by God's good grace, he allows you to see your deep need for a Savior, he will gladly rescue you. Of course, no interaction with the disciples isn't complete without Peter deciding to open his trap. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus, aren't you proud of us? Aren't you so glad that we joined your little ragtag squad? <laughs> Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last First, Jesus is making us a promise. If you trust me, you will be rewarded to some degree in this present life. Completely and fully and more abundantly in the life to come. Be comforted by Jesus' promise. If you don't mind, I want to read an extended quote to you from J.C. Ryle. As he's providing commentary on this passage. He says this, there is none, certainly in the New Testament, which holds out such encouragement for the life that now is. Let everyone who is fearful and faint-hearted in Christ's service look at this promise. Let all who are enduring hardness and tribulation for Christ's sake study this promise well and drink out of it comfort. To all who make sacrifices on account of the gospel, Jesus promises a hundred times as much in this present age. They will have not only pardon and glory in the world to come, they will have even here on earth hopes and joys and tangible comforts sufficient to make up for all that they lose. They will find in the communion of saints new friends, new relations, new companions, more loving, faithful, and valuable than any they had before their conversion. Their introduction into the family of God will be an abundant recompense for exclusion from the society of this world. This may sound startling and incredible to many ears, but thousands have found by experience that it is true. To all who make sacrifices on account of the gospel. Jesus promises eternal life in the age to come. 
As soon as they put aside their earthly tent, they will enter a glorious existence. And in the morning of the resurrection, will receive such honor and joy as past man's understanding. Their light affliction for a few years will end in an everlasting reward. Their fights and sorrows while in the body will be exchanged for perfect rest and a conqueror's crown. They will dwell in a world where there is no death, no sin, no devil, no cares, no weeping, no parting, for the former things will have passed away. God has said it, and it will all be found true. With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this time and this place to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of the core truth that Jesus came to rescue sinners and that all it requires is a childlike trust that Jesus is your son that he died on the cross for our sins and he is our only hope for salvation. Father, for those who are hearing this for the first time and are uncertain of where they stand with you, I pray even now in this moment that you are making it crystal clear to them the offer that you are making to them to rescue them from their sins and to guarantee them the promise and the reality of eternal life with you. And I pray even now in this moment, they are choosing to trust you as a child and they may not have all the information they want, but they have all the information they need that Jesus loved them and died for them and he offers forgiveness of sins to them. Father, for those who are hearing this and are your followers already, we ask that you would protect us from the temptation of making this way more complicated than it needs to be. I pray that you would routinely take us back to being that trusting child. Without all of our theological frameworks in place, at least for a season, just setting them aside so we can just delight sitting in the lap of our Savior as he reaches out and touches us and blesses us. I pray that we, your followers, would make that a daily discipline to sit with you and to delight in you. And I pray that we're ever mindful that you made the impossible possible through your son. That you reconciled broken, fallen, sinful man with yourself. And you did it through your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.